0: very very important that you are the expert on something yeah, i think today we're in a world where the world is looking for specialization and expertise
1: that and more on the art of becoming an architect on episode three of on block welcome back to on this is your host miguel ortiz and uh, been a while. I know, I'm sorry. Uh, I've had a, a, a busy couple of weeks. First, uh, my wife and I went on vacation and we had family time. Uh, we ended up in Cuba for about a week, which was a very interesting experience. I'm originally from Puerto Rico and Cuba is like a alternate dimension of Puerto Rico. You know, So if you're a Marvel fan, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's got similar architecture. The people are very similar. Uh, it's just it's just different in, in in certain ways. For example, some of the buildings are are crumbling, uh, which is pretty sad to see. Um, the people are super friendly. Uh, it's a great place for photography. I have to admit, uh, which is one of my one of my hobbies, as you may know. Um, so if you like. Classic cars, vintage cars, is an amazing place to go check those out. You know, one of the stories about the classic cars in, uh, in Cuba is that they're beautiful on the outside. And a lot of them are very well kept uh, on the outside. Um, but for what I hear from the people is that they all have been retrofitted for whatever parts they have in the island. So a lot of them have, for example, Mitsubishi engines. Uh, so you, you could be in a 57 Chevy with a Mitsubishi engine and basically no shock absorbers because those they can't get those in the island. So you're riding, you're going down the road, and any little hole on the road, it feels like a, like a crater. Uh, it's pretty amazing. It was a great experience. And if you want to check out some of the photos, uh, they're on my website at megalandia.com. I uh, have uh, plenty of car, vintage car photos. As well as uh, some of the other street photography that I like to shoot. You can also check out my Instagram at MA Ortiz Jr., Um, and I have a lot of those photos out there, and they're still coming out. I'm, I'm still processing a lot of that stuff. And then after I came back from vacation, it went straight into another rush. I mean, never mind the work in between, right? But it went to another rush for the following weekend uh, with the opening of my first photo exhibition in a small art gallery here in the Austin area. So the gallery is called Tin Whistle Gallery, and it's a group of us, about six of us, who came together uh, in a class and were putting our work, our work out in the open. So it was first time I had to do this uh, for an exhibition Um, so had to learn quite a bit in in a short amount of time from everything from framing to pricing to how to hang how to put it all together uh, get a concept together Uh, it was a it was a great experience for me and and I'm still learning it's gonna be uh, on for the rest of the month for the rest of May uh, every Saturday so if you're in an Austin area feel free to pass by check it out on a Saturday in the tin, tin Whistle Gallery. A lot of those photos are also on my website. So if you want to check them out at miguelandia.com. And next week, uh, Consensus comes around uh, in New York City. And I'm going to be there as well. So if you want to say hi, when you want to chat, uh, feel free to pass by. I'm most of the time in the in the IBM booth. Feel free to pass by, ask for me. Uh, say hi, and if you have, or if you know any great uh, possible guests within within uh, uh, consensus, let me know, and I'll I'll be honored to uh, interview some of the guys over there. I'm going to be taking my recording uh, equipment with me, so uh, we can we can uh, probably record a couple episodes. I would also like to remind you to. Check out uh, our podcast in the different uh, channels that we have. We are available in iTunes. We are available on Stitcher, in Google Play. Uh, we're also in SoundCloud. So feel free to sign up. And if you like the podcast, feel free to give us a five-star review. That will come. will be very useful in uh, continuing to grow the, the podcast and the audience. today we have a great episode with friend and mentor Bertrand Portier. He's a distinguished engineer at IBM and he's also a CTO for insurance in the GBS division. So without further delay, here's Bertrand.
0: My pleasure, Miguel. My name is Bertrand Portier. I am an IBM distinguished engineer. My role today is to be the CTO for insurance in our global business services in North America. So global business services means um, the consulting and implementation arm of IBM, meaning the work we do with clients. Okay. I've been in IBM, um, yes, I've been in IBM for quite a while. Uh, I started um, as a graduate um, in uh, 2000.
1: Oh, wow. So you've been uh, almost 19 years now.
0: Yes. Yeah, time flies. And um, the good thing about IBM, you know, it's like when, um, if if you will not get bored, right? Because IBM has a lot of different um, roles and business units. And I've worked for IBM in uh, a number of different countries in um, many different forms, you know, from um, consulting with clients to working in development, uh, field-based development research. Um, so yes and um <laughs> yeah. You don't have to leave the company to get a, a new boss <laughs> or a new job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's something that I've noticed myself, but I haven't been nowhere near as long in IBM. So uh, I'm looking forward to hear your thoughts in some of these, uh, some of the roles that you had. I noticed that you had a lot of architecture experience, but a lot of, in, in a lot of different areas, right? So you you work for, for sales team, for what what they call Tiger Teams. Uh, and you also did client architecture. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how is it uh, different to have that architect role in a, in a client-facing uh, situation as opposed to working in the lab?
0: Very good. Very good question. So the, the key thing about being an architect is that you have to be an expert communicator. Right? You have to be able to communicate with your different stakeholders. And that is true in a lab environment or in a client-facing environment. Um, I would say that typically in IBM, the lab architects uh, are going to be more hands-on. So we, we have the chief architects for our offerings, for example. Uh, and these people, they spend a lot of time with clients, by the way. You know, it's not because you're in the lab that you don't see clients. These people spend more than half of their time with clients so that they really understand what the industry needs. but at the same time, they are also very hands-on and and I know a lot of them that actually you write some of the code that goes into the offering. When you're client facing, you have um you have a number of other things that are part of the job that you need to take care of, you know all the things related to being a consultant and working with clients. So you have to do a lot of preparation for your meetings, internal prep with the different IBM teams that you bring together, preparation with the clients to agree on objectives, etc. And then doing those um interactions with clients. And for us architects, the best ones are usually the workshops. You know, there are architecture workshops and others where we you know, we get to define um, define something that we are going to do together, agree on scope, et cetera, And then we get to do the, the implementation, right? And as the architect, and now in my role, because I am an executive, you know, I, am, I am no longer, you know, the actual architect on the project, but I have a number of architects who are working on different projects that yes. I supervise. But these architects, what they are going to do is that they are, they are going to be the liaison between the client who has the needs who is paying for the project and the developers um, most of them are going to be IBM developers and sometimes from the client as well uh, to deliver in a delivery role to deliver um, what needs to be delivered in budget and in time
1: <laughs> okay so so basically the client let me let me see if I get this right the client architect <clears throat> I'm sorry. The client architect in IBM becomes more of a liaison between the customer and then all the different groups and products that IBM may have to offer, and then they oversee the solution, the overall solution that the customer may uh, may implement in their Im- environment. Is that is that good? A good yes. description?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good summary. And I would say we we have at a high level, if you if you're a client facing architect you're either going to be um, in what we call technical sales, pre-sales. And sometimes in the industry, we, we call we are, um, um, sales engineers. Right? These positions where you're a sales engineer, but instead of being um, focused on only one offering and one product, you you have a number of offerings under your portfolio. And you're responsible for putting it all together for the client. So, and then your your role in quote tech sales would be to to show the value and influence your clients to use those set of offerings because the architecture you created is going to bring business benefits. Perfect. And then if you're if you're in consulting or in or implementation, then you're in delivery. but You could be. Um there is consulting and then there is um implementation where you're in delivery architect. So you could be very close to the labs. You know, we have what we call lab services and I used to be part of that group in, in Europe back in my earlier days, where um, you're really close to the labs and you have clients implement those um emerging technologies, you know, offerings that are fairly recent to the market, fairly new, things where we are still learning. Um, for example you new know, blockchain today, IoT, etc. And you you have um, lots of contacts in the IBM labs and you also do shorter term engagements with clients where you're the lead solution architect uh, to implement and deliver a solution. And then we have other architects in a delivery environment, part of our global business services practice, mm-hmm. who are going to stay involved for um, longer delivery projects.
1: Okay. So today you're a distinguished engineer, which is one of the highest roles, uh, technical roles that someone can have in IBM. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, Thank you. Can can you tell us a little bit about what does it take to become a a distinguished distinguished engineer while you're doing it in a client-facing role? Usually I think we kind of, uh look at distinguished engineers as someone who were software engineers throughout their career and they 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 got there through through lab work right um so can you tell us a little bit what's the difference between reaching that that pinnacle through the client facing roles that you had
0: uh, absolutely the and um, this is the where distinguished engineers and the professions and the um, the executive appointment came from it came from the labs right so you're a distinguished engineer and if you come from the lab, you're like you're you're the person who maybe contributed to or invented you know, um you know um really big innovations for maybe uh, back in the days um databases you know s q l or database management systems, or or these these things that had an impact on, on the world, on the industry, and the world. So you you have had to have an impact. Maybe you were, you know, the, um, the the chief architect for an IBM offering that had a huge impact on the marketplace, and you were appointed a distinguished engineer for your impact on the industry, specifically for that technology domain that you uh, you own. If you're client facing now, you know, what we're going to look at are your your contributions to the industry, right? You your contributions to IBM's client's business and IBM's business. Okay. And that's the big difference, right? And that's where the bar is pretty high and you still have to be known worldwide for the guy for that thing, right? so you have to be known worldwide you're the worldwide expert on how to how to implement, let's say, for example, you're the worldwide expert on implementing um, private cloud um, with uh, within a banking within the banking industry right? mm-hmm. and Anyone, anyone at IBM, any senior executive at IBM, or even clients based on your your, your digital presence, et cetera, They they know you and they come to you. They ask you by name when there is a you know a private cloud banking discussion, Perfect. and that's kind of what it takes to to do that in in a sales environment. And then of course, because IBM is a business and our clients run businesses you have the financial aspects as well. where you, you have to have had an impact on your clients' you know, top-line or bottom-line re- revenue as well as uh, top-line revenue or bottom-line profits as well as IBM's you know, revenue and profit.
1: Very cool. Very cool. So that all that experience have uh, basically brought you down to working with blockchain or at least you were working with blockchain until very, very recently. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what, what were some of the discussions that you were having with customers in the financial services sector uh, about blockchain and, and what are they looking into uh, when when they're trying to do blockchain projects?
0: So what's really interesting um, in um, in my world, my world, which um, which is insurance, today it's only insurance, and it used to be financial services, you know, banking, insurance, capital markets. What's really interesting with blockchain in those environments is that what we are doing really is we are looking at the innovations that are happening in the um, anonymous um, anonymous blockchains out there, the innovations that are coming from Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other networks, you know, like IOTA and others, et cetera. And we are looking at how we can take those innovations and how we can make them work in the context of our highly regulated industry. And that's really, that's really what it comes down to. And, um, we, we have um, we are highly regulated. We know insurance companies going to do something uh, that would go against you know, regulators in terms of um, developing uh, insurance products in terms of reporting on policy or claims events. So we really have to to see what it would take to take those innovations and use them in the context of the industry. And to make this happen, we realized uh, back in the day that um, even when I got started with the blockchain, there was no hyperledger. Right? And then IBM and others realized that we had to have a forum to, to take those innovations and make them work in the context of businesses. Uh, and that's when we, uh, IBM and others started the um, hyperledger project. And Java mm-hmm. Linux Foundation and what we call permissioned blockchain.
1: Yeah, so that's interesting. so how do you how do you see permission blockchain or hyperledger fabric, for example, helping customers that are having to deal with uh, regulatory compliance and having to deal with tight governance uh, of their infrastructure. Uh, how do you see that 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 type of uh, blockchain offering helping?
0: So I'm involved with the, um, a, a, an initiative right now, which is called OpenIDL, the Open Insurance Data Link. And uh, OpenIDL is a network, uh, a blockchain network that has um, insurance regulators and in an the insurance industry in the US, um, there are the um, state um, commissioners, like right, the Department of Insurance as well as insurance companies, insurance carriers. And um, we are working with a, an organization that is already has a network in place and already has a mission to work uh, between the insurance companies, the insurance carriers, and the regulators. And the The organization is called AAIS, and they are um, a national Level advisory organization for the U.S. property and casualty um, market, Mm -hmm. and what they do already with their members. I think they have more than 700 members. They already help their members um, report to regulators on a quarterly basis. Reports related to claims and events, uh, claims and policy events, as well as develop. Um, products, develop products, develop new products, and get them approved in a specific state, in a specific market. So what we are doing with blockchain here um, as the initial use case, and by the way, the network will grow to include more insurance industry ecosystem participants and more use cases. But what we did as a starting point is that we, for OpenIDL, Is that we we looked at how we can improve um, the data call process. The data call process is when it's a little bit like a request from information coming from the regulators to the insurance carriers operating their state. And the way it works today, there's a lot of friction in terms of how data is going to be provided to uh, the regulators, there are a lot of back and forth. Uh, in terms of what data is required, what data uh, an insurance company agrees to submit or not submit, etc. So with AIS and the Open Idea Network, we looked at how we can remove the frictions when it comes to providing to regulators the insights that they need um, from the state of the insurance in their states while having the carriers, the insurance carriers who own the data better understanding on how that data is going to be used and a better control over the data that they share.
1: Very interesting. So uh, just so you guys know, if you want more information about AAIS, you can go to AAISonline.com, and I'll have a link in the in the notes. Um, but uh, Bertrand, so so let me see if I understand uh, the OpenIDL is actually, it stands for Open Insurance Data Link. And what they're trying to do is not necessarily how to offer insurance to 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 their customers or how to communicate insurance companies together, at least not right now. But their main focus initially has been to uh, provide a network for insurance companies to publish their regulatory information to regulators uh, and facilitate and, and basically expedite that process. Is that is that the main focus today?
0: That, that's, um, so that's, they, they do two things, right? So AIS, they are, by the way, they are the only national not-for-profit advisory organization, right, In the, uh, in the, um, PNC industry. So, and what they do is two things. One, um, and by the way, their mission has been there for a long time and has not changed. We are just applying blockchain to help them better fulfill their mission. And they do two things at high level one they they have exactly like you said, you know they have um insurance companies report to regulators in the context of what we call statistical reporting every quarter um you know data calls whenever um the regulators have a question and need data for it, and two, they also have you know insurance companies developed new insurance products and get them approved uh, in specific states. So for that, they go through what's called forms, and they have forms that are already pre-approved in specific states. And then they work with um, an advisor and the insurance company to to instantiate those forms um, specifically for the insurance company in in the in the state. So basically, they have the network in place. They are already doing these things. The mission is not changing, but they saw an opportunity to leverage blockchain technology on top of the existing networks to remove the frictions and provide better uh, distributed governance and better data control for the uh, data owners.
1: Very cool. Very interesting. And it's something I mean, I need to read up a little bit more about that, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm interested in that on that area.
0: So, oh, yes, and we have uh, YouTube videos and other things as well, right? If you start looking looking these stuff, so we have a number of things
1: there. Great. I'll I'll add some of those links um to to the show notes. So, you know, it, and one of the questions I have for you around a very similar um uh, topic is that we usually talk to customers about the difference between a horizontal network Right. And and a a vertical network. So horizontal network, I usually refer to um, how do we get, you know, different banks or different insurance companies talking to each other and exchanging data. And then more on the on the vertical network would be how do we get uh, different parties that are non-competitors? Uh, but that may be part of the same process. So think about like how food trust works, right? In which you have a retailer and then you have all the folks that touch the food all the way down to the farmer, which are part of the network talking to each other. Those seem to be a little bit easier to, to put together and, and to be successful on, uh, mainly because they're non-competitors. Uh, in a horizontal, uh, type network, Then you you get a lot of competition. They don't want to share data with each other very easily. Uh, Have you had to deal a lot with those type of dynamics when when working on the insurance company uh, with insurance companies?
0: Absolutely, and um, and and you know, especially in the insurance company, we have uh, in the insurance industry, we have very strict um, antitrust laws and anti collusion. So you need to be very, very careful as an insurance company in terms of what you share or disclose with a competitor. Right. So m- number one, because of these laws, and number two, because usually you know they, they are highly competitive markets with a, with small margins, right? Especially in the in the auto um, industry. So so this is always top of mind for us, um, the competitive aspects. And we've looked at use cases where you you need to um provide, provide access to your data to your competitors to fulfill you know the, the business process. Um, for example, when you're doing um subrogation, right? Subrogation in in, in insurance is when for example, we got into a car crash, right? Um, I, you're in front of me, I are end you, right? So we have a collision together. Then there's going to be um, your insurance company is going to go after my insurance companies, right? Because I was at fault and make a claim to my insurance company, right? So there's going to be a claim that is made between the two insurance companies. It's called subrogation. And it's, it's part of recovery, with the with recovery. And when that happens, um, then you will basically um, <laughs> create a package um, that you will submit to the other insurance company. You're going to say, um, you know, your, your insured was at fault and the damage that uh, there, is, there was some damage and uh, there was some hospital bills and uh, the car needs to be repaired. And there's so much repairs that needs to happen uh, for the car. And you need to pay me for those repairs. Uh, you're asking the other insurance companies. Um, and the other insurance company is going to say, well, actually, I don't. I agree on the fault and who is at fault, but I don't agree those repairs cost that much. And I'm not sure we have a policy to on hospital bills to pay so much and not this or whatever. So there's a lot of friction and a lot of back and forth that goes right in that process. And at the end of the day, you're you're not sharing your competitive differentiator on how you handle claims within your own organizations. That that still becomes your own secret sauce and how you do claims, etc. But as part of the claims process. There is a need to leverage the ecosystem and specifically um, interact with your competitors uh, to fulfill the business process. Uh, and this is this is where we see you know, that blockchain can can help. What I learned with my experience in those types of use cases um, is that it takes a long time to get. Um, a number of competing insurance companies to to get together and and have the legal infrastructure that will allow them to um, to better share that data. So that legal aspect, of that business competition aspect, really gets in the way of the innovation because we need to be really really careful. And what helps a lot in those cases is to find. An existing legal entity, an existing organization that's already out there today, that could be used as a forum to better um, share that information. An organization that already has the insurance companies as members and has the legal mandate or the legal right to um, collect data, share data back, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so. That that's what, where where I see the um um the initiatives go faster when we use an existing body as opposed to going from um, MOUs between two companies and then uh, bringing on another companies and creating a consortium and mm-hmm. eventually creating a new legal entity. Both are um, valid. Um, but one is going to take uh, more time.
1: Yeah, more time, more more legal, uh, uh, you know, more more legal conversations. Uh, it, yeah, I could I could see how there's going to be some hurdles in, in putting that together. So mm-hmm. I want to step back for a second and 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 look into your, your new role, right? So you now you're CTO for insurance in GBS or Global Business Services uh, branch of IBM. Can you tell us a little bit about what does that entail and what does the, 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 the new CTO role uh, or responsibilities uh, you have?
0: Absolutely. Uh, and by the way, I am still doing blockchain. So that is still a, a critical um, aspect of my job, but I'm not restricted to, to only blockchain. Um, the thing about my role now is that I am uh, strictly working with, um, within the insurance industry. So I think that that's um, that really gives me that lens, you know, and really trying to, to see how we can help our clients and how we can help them adopt, you know, those technology aspects uh, within the context of insurance. And I think it, it gives me a chance to go even deeper um, in the industry, uh, in, in the insurance industry. So what we are doing, um, um, I have a number of what I do is client-facing. So I spend most of my time with clients. And I, I also spend time with the IBM teams to um, to help bring up the uh, technical expertise and the technical knowledge uh, for the team who is client-facing. And when I work with clients, what I do is um, I get involved um in the early phases, where we start to discuss with the executives. Um, for example, this week I was in a meeting when we had. Um, it was um, one of a uh, US insurance companies. We we talked to their head of property and casualty, to their president, with like the CEO right, for the insurance company, and in the meeting was um, you know uh, they had the CIO as well and the CTO and we discussed uh, a number of things related to, specifically, and this is a topic that always comes up, you know, the disruption that is happening in the insurance industry today and how a, a large insurance carrier can still be agile and can still um, transform and react to um, threats and opportunities very fast. So, so we looked at all of these things, yeah. and then very quickly you get to, well, I need to get a handle on on, on my data, I really need to, I really need to be able to access um, these multi sets of data, not just my internal data, but all of that external data, and being able to have a, you know, a good handle on that, collect it, manage it, use it. I need to be able to do analytics on full data sets and be able to infuse those, you know, um, artificial intelligence um, aspects into my existing processes and experiences. Um, I need to have a very strong, you know, integration layer between um, my, uh, my core systems uh, that by the way, I am typically at an insurance company, you're constantly modernizing those core systems, right? But the, These systems used to be the majority of where you spend your time on as an insurance company. Today, you spend time on those, and you have to spend time on all of the other things around it, integration, uh, data, AI, experiences, and, of course, and there is not one meeting that I go to without talking about cloud. (laughs) and uh, Multi-hybrid, multi-cloud, you know, is not just... A way to um, to to get new infrastructure faster. It's a new way of working, you know, and leveraging the as a service uh, economics and models. Being able to leverage assets, services, apps, data wherever they are, um, and then not being restricted to specific, you know, providers, etc., is, is a conversation I have um, all the time with my clients.
1: Yeah, wow. That's, so those are those are pretty wide conversations. Uh, pretty you know, a wide range of technologies. So this leads me to my selfish question of the episode, which means I I actually want to know in order to make decisions for my own career. Um, I noticed that architects as they move up in in uh in in the company, especially within IBM, they get more technologies added to their to their portfolio, right? Of of what they can play with and what they're knowledgeable on. So that leads you to be more like that Swiss army knife, right? Type person. But in your case, although you continue to add uh more technologies and and, and more systems into your portfolio, it seems that in the last few years, uh, the how the area in which you implement those technologies have narrowed, right? So you went from a generalist to a financial services sector, then to specifically insurance. Um, do you feel like that's a necessary step to kind of narrow in, in a particular vertical or in a particular industry? Uh, or do you or, you know, what are your thoughts about that?
0: I think this is a really, really good question, and it applies not only to architects but to, in general, you know what we call knowledge workers. Right, we are knowledge workers today, right? And we, and as a knowledge worker, you have to be able to, to be effective and influence and drive business outcomes within large contexts, where you have a lot of people around you, colleagues. Partners, clients, etc., and it's not you know a knowledge worker is very different from you know working in a factory and uh, knowing exactly you know looking exactly at how many pieces you produce you know, um in a day. Um, so as knowledge workers, and and by the way, I recommend uh, uh, Peter Drucker, as the uh, the effective the effective executive. He talks about this a lot and I think it applies to the architect profession and what I'm doing today in IBM is that, yes, you, you need to be able to have a, a general conversation. You need to be able to know at a high level what's happening in the industry, what's happening um, and what role specific players have in the industry, what role, what can be done specifically with technologies. But it's very very important that you are the expert on something. Yeah, I think today we're in a world where the world is looking for specialization and expertise, and um, you you have to have your your thing that you're very very deep on and that you know very very well. So, for example, one of my things is blockchain in insurance. Right, so I know I know a lot about this, right, and I I can go really deep. I can go really hands-on. I've got the blockchain, you know, development environment. I've got blockchain networks. I can write, you know, smart contracts and all of these things. And I can also talk about what's happening in the world uh, around blockchain insurance. So that's my expertise. I cannot just say today, and I think it would be foolish to, to believe that you can survive by saying, I am a generalist architect, and I can understand requirements from clients. And apply them into, um, you know, and work items for my team to develop, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think you really need to to have that deep expertise and special specialization, even if the role is pretty general, like the role of the architect.
1: That's a that's a great ab- advice. So thank you so much for that, and I think that could benefit a lot of folks, not just architect roles, but a a lot of people in in technology in general. All right. So that leads me to the last question. So, you know, you're a distinguished engineer, you're a CTO, you know, what, what's next?
0: <laughs> Very good question. So what's next for me is, um, is to be successful in my, in my new role that I just started in January, right? <laughs> Three months ago. And um, I have to tell you, um, I am outside of my comfort zone most of the time now. Like I was telling you, right, when you're the expert, like you're the expert on blockchain, you go to a meeting, and you're the one in the meeting around the table, you're the one who knows the most about the the topic that you're discussing, right? (laughs) Um, But then um, when you get into a new role, you know, (laughs) you may not be the one who knows the most about the topic, and you still have to to be effective and influence. Huh. So um, I think what what's happening for me today is that um, there are a lot of uh, things that I'm learning, how to how to be effective within my new organization, how to influence, how to drive outcomes. And uh, that is really my objective is to be successful in my new role. And, you know, I know that I'm going to grow. I know I'm going to learn a lot. And uh, that's why, you know, I think I would also recommend to, you know, listeners here to you know not do not be comfortable. I, you do not be comfortable. If you want to grow, you need to be uncomfortable. That's great
1: advice, uh, Bertrand. Thank you so much for spending time with us here. I hope you uh, visit us again, and maybe we can have a conversation more specifically once you get uh, more experience in in this new role of you of yours. Uh, we can we can talk a little bit about
0: that. My pleasure, Miguel.